Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm extremely pleased to have Dr. Vindia Fernandez as my guest today. Dr. Fernandez is a board-eligible neuropsychologist that has worked with children and adolescents for over 20 years. She is a volunteer clinical faculty member in the Cultural Neuropsychology Program at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine, which is affiliated with the Hispanic Neuropsychiatric Center of Excellence and she is a lecturer in the Michael D. Eisner College of Education at California State University, Northridge. She obtained her undergraduate degree at Yale University and her Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Houston, where she conducted neuroscience research on children with dyslexia. She completed her internship and postdoctoral training at the UCLA Semmel Institute. As a recipient of the Ruth L. Kirstein National Research Service Award from the National Institute of Health, Dr. Fernandez studied language and neurocognitive functioning in young adults with schizophrenia. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and daughter, loves to explore new cultures through travel, literature, and food, and is passionate about community outreach and social justice. Welcome, Vindia, and thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the important work that you do with the special needs and bilingual communities. Gilda, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So to begin, um, tell me what should Latino and other bilingual families know about assessment practices of bilingual children? I think the most important thing for families to keep in mind is that not all assessors in the community have the uh, appropriate training to work with bilingual families. I think there's often a misconception that all assessments are created equal and that you can go to virtually any practitioner to get the same type of evaluation, but that's simply not the case. And in order to conduct a good bilingual evaluation, um, the assessment essentially needs to be conducted in two languages. So if the the assessor that you're working with um, isn't skilled in doing that, you might not actually get a, a good quality assessment. Um, and, and the problem is twofold. Um, there's a risk of over-identifying disorders in bilingual children, um, presumably because if they're not tested in their um, native language or their most dominant language, they're going to perform more poorly um, than they otherwise would have. Um, but there's also a risk of under-identifying uh, a, a potential problem. So, for example, if a child um, presents with significant language impairment, but the assessor is not familiar with what language looks like in bilingual children, um, they may attribute the problems that they see to, to the child's um, status as an English language learner. So it's a very complex issue. And I think families really need to inform themselves and, and understand what they need to be looking for so that they get their child the absolute best possible assessment. Well, then tell me then, what are some of the things that are important for providers to know about conducting assessments with bilingual and bicultural students? 
For providers, I think uh, approaching the situation in a humble manner, understanding there are things that their training may have not may not have prepared them for is important. Um, not all Hispanic families are created equal, right? If you think about Latin America, it covers huge territories, um, various languages, hundreds of languages. Um, Spanish is not the only one, of course, right? So there's Brazil with Portuguese and right, there are right. lots of indigenous languages. And the cultural practices vary from country to country. So, you know, I think approaching an assessment uh, from that perspective of let me let me understand that I don't know everything that there is and, and how am I going to identify difficulties, you know, if I don't if I don't really understand um, the complexity of the issue. I think that's important Um you know, I, I think bilingual kids um, also just require careful language proficiency testing to make sure that you can test them in English. Um, they may seem English dominant, but unless you're asking those important questions like, how does the child communicate with their parents? Um, how long has the child been in the country? Um how does a child communicate with their siblings and with their peers at school? Does the child watch uh, television in uh, an English in a language other than English, or listen to music in a language other than English? Unless you're asking those questions and know to ask those questions, you may you may not be getting the full picture, and so it would be really difficult to um, to proceed with testing without having an appreciation appreciation for those nuances. Right. There's just um, an extra level of of knowledge that you need to have about uh, test administration, test selection, um, how different um, tests are constructed and and the different normative data that's collected on um, various tests, because not all um, tests can be applicable to kids that that are bilingual. So. It, it it just takes a whole um, a knowledge base that um, I think, you know, we can't take for granted. Well, then, how do you feel it is best to handle testing a bilingual child when you are fairly certain that they are proficient in English? Um, so I think establishing English proficiency is one of the things that you want to do when conducting an assessment with a bilingual child, but it's not everything, right? So I think the problem with not uh, testing their Spanish abilities um, creates a set of, of problems, right? So when you assess a child, you want to ensure that you have their absolute best performance, right? You're, you want a good characterization of their strengths and weaknesses. And without knowing what they look like in Spanish, then then you, you can't be sure that you've got good, accurate data. Um, if, you're, if you're fairly certain and a child is English dominant, and all signs seem to point to that um, conclusion, um, again, just kind of taking a step back examining your own cultural competency, making sure that you have all of the skills that you need to work with the family. Um, 
is also really important. Um, working with uh, parents that uh, don't speak English can be challenging in and of itself, even if the child is 100% English, uh, you know, fluent in English and dominant in English. Um, I think parents, uh, especially if they're coming from uh, a lower socioeconomic status or have little acculturation um, to working with professionals, um, they can be sort of reticent to, to disclose pertinent clinical information. Um, so, so really having a good cultural match can facilitate that uh, data collection process. It can help you build rapport with the parent and really establish trust. So it's not just about doing the assessment with the child. It's about gathering all relevant information and making sure that, that you establish good rapport with the family. Taking stock of your own cultural competence is really important. Well, here's an interesting question. Um, is it true that speaking to babies in two languages will delay speech, as some believe? So that's a really interesting question, and it comes up for me all the time in clinical practice. Um, I have friends that ask me that, too, because I have several uh, bilingual friends that are raise, raising their children bilingual. Um, so the, the literature is actually sort of mixed. There's evidence that for typically developing children, um, there's really no, uh, no risk to raising kids uh, bilingually. Um, and in fact, many kids that grow up bilingual actually incur some cognitive uh, benefits. Uh, for example, they, they tend to have slightly better executive functioning. And if you think about it, that sort of makes sense, right? If you have two languages in your brain and at any given moment in time, you're you're sort of competing. Those two languages are sort of competing for attention, so to speak. Um, in order to communicate with somebody, you're constantly having to shut one of those languages off. And p potentially, you're having to transition between those two languages um, as you navigate, you know, communication throughout the day. And that strengthens your executive functioning. It strengthens your ability to um, inhibit responses, right? So, so in a way, uh, raising kids bilingually actually incurs some some cognitive benefits. Um, however, when kids are learning two languages at once, um, there's a bit of a cognitive burden too, if you think about it, because every object that a child sees will have uh, potentially two different um, labels for it, one in the first language and one in the second language. And, and potentially there may be several uh, labels in one of the languages, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so when you compare a monolingual uh, child with a bilingual child, um, it may seem as though um, the the bilingual child has less vocabulary or knows less words. Um, but in fact, um, they may have uh, the same amount of words, but there may be less objects that they know the words to. Um, and if that's getting a little bit confusing, um, it's, you know, 
there's a reason for that. It's because this gets really complicated really quickly. Um, when you assess a child that um, is in the process of accessing or um, learning a second language, um, you actually have to account for that uh, for that additional cognitive burden of learning two words for the same for the same object, right? And um, depending on the context, you may only know. Like, I'll give you an example just to kind of make it clear. Um, children. Um, who speak conversational Spanish, for example, and have learned it at home with their speaking to their mother, their father, their grandparents, um, may know the name of common household objects only in Spanish. Um, they may only know the names of certain vegetables and fruits in Spanish, but there are other things um, that they may only know um, the, the, the names for in English when it comes to things that are circumscribed to the school setting, like a, a desk or um, a binder or the chalkboard or other academic language. Um, so when you conduct an assessment with a, a bilingual child, you need to allow for them to be able to provide an answer in either language, um, in English or in Spanish or in another language. When you add up everything that they're able to say, um, then they actually perform just fine. But there sometimes is a little bit of a lag in, um, in, in that vocabulary acquisition. By the time kids have exposure to English-only instruction for about three years or so, um, they actually end up performing about the same as their monolingual English-speaking peers on monolingual English measures. So they even out pretty quickly. I think when it becomes most concerning is when kids have persistent deficits in vocabulary development and, uh, you know, complex language use, syntax um, that aren't being, uh, that aren't you know, working themselves out uh, after after a few years of language exposure, of the L2 language exposure. Well, that makes a lot of sense, really, when you think about it. If you're learning two languages at once and you're having to learn twice as many words, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it, how can you learn all of that in the same amount of time? You know, how can you learn, let's say, you know, five or 10,000 words you know, in, in the same, you know, amount of time that you would be, let's say, if you're learning 20,000 words because you're learning two words for all the same things. Mm -hmm. even, even if, as you say, there may be some words only in Spanish, some words only in English. But, yeah, of course, it makes a lot of sense that it would take more time, you know, if, sure. if you're learning mm -hmm. more information. It, it just simply would take more time. Have you noticed any specific differences between, let's say, uh, the neurotypical child and the neurodiverse child when it, when they happen to be bilingual in this particular um, in this particular setting in this particular context are there any marked differences that you've noted you know there isn't a ton of research out there on what um, on how uh, children with mild cognitive difficulties perform uh, on bilingual measures throughout their development um, I think just drawing from my own clinical experience, I do believe that kids um, that already have some sort of neurological uh, vulnerability, let's say, 
um, struggle when it comes to learning two languages for the same reasons that we just discussed. There's so much more to learn, and perhaps it's a little bit more confusing. Um, so in certain cases, I do recommend that, um, you know, the language learning process be kept as simple as possible for some kids. Um, and again, it, it makes sense when you think about it. Um, it just kind of going back to monolingual uh, language development, when kids have uh, dyslexia, for example, we often make the recommendation that um, they uh, that they don't have to complete a second language requirement in school just because um, learning a second language can be so overwhelming for those students. Um, I think, you know, with kids that have atypical development in whatever way, um, that cognitive burden can be a little bit heavy. And so, you know, whatever makes most sense for the family, um, let's let's go with that, whether that means, you know, provide speech therapy only in Spanish initially, or maybe only in English, um, if the child already seems to be transferring over to English dominance. We, we can work around that, but maybe let's make this as simple of a process as possible. Well, that sure makes a lot of sense. So what characteristics should someone look for in a professional to conduct a bilingual assessment? I would recommend that any family considering having an assessment done and if they have a, a bilingual child, they should be looking for um, for a clinician who is either a native speaker in both languages or um a native speaker of the of the first language or a fluent speaker of both languages, um, but definitely somebody who has an appreciation for uh, regional variations in vocabulary use. Um, like I said, not all uh, Latin American countries are created equal, <laughs> um, and that certainly goes for like vocabulary. I like to sometimes use the example of uh, a taco. A taco in in you know, Los Angeles, you know, means, uh, you know, a delicious Mexican dish with a tortilla and some sort of meat and uh, other other toppings. But in, in a different Latin American country, a taco could mean a high heel. Um, so, you know, if you don't have a good understanding of some of these uh, regional variations, <laughs> yes, in, in how language is used, you're going to potentially... Um, either underestimate a child's development or just just come to the wrong conclusions or, or come up with some inaccurate findings. So just looking for a clinician who is either native or fluent speak, speaker of, um, of both of the target languages, I think would be important. Um, using uh, an interpreter is common, but it's not usually recommended. Um, and in Los Angeles, we really don't have any excuses, do we? Um, there are so many uh, Spanish-speaking clinicians, and um, there are clinicians that speak a variety of other languages, too. So it's just about reaching out to professional organizations that may have more information about where to find certain clinicians, clinicians that speak Mandarin, clinicians that speak Korean, um, and and really, really making that effort because it can make the world of difference to this one child. I, I think so a, a good appreciation for regional differences in language use or vocabulary use is important. I think the, the clinician should also have firsthand knowledge of cultural differences. Um, you know, not, not all 
Latino families are loud and emotive and passionate, et cetera. <laughs> these, are, these are misconceptions <laughs> that people sometimes have. Um, in my family, for example, we tend to be sort of quiet and reserved and um, don't feel comfortable expressing our feelings all the time. Um, so you don't want to go into an assessment making these types of assumptions. So just Finding a clinician that that is a good cultural match, I think, is also important. But yeah, families don't always know to look for these things when they're um, having their child assessed. Um, but Gilda, I think it's so important that there's more of a conversation around this between clinicians and other professionals and uh, families. Um, you know, we're in Southern California and... Uh, Latino children and bilingual children specifically make up the majority of uh, the students in in LAUSD. I want to say, um, you know, I want to say there's about 75% of students in LAUSD are Latino and uh, a majority of them are Spanish speakers. So this is a really important issue. And I don't think that as professionals, we can continue to to test kids with sort of a good enough approach. Um, I, I'm seeing a, a, a trend that's a little bit scary. And whereas before I think we used to over-identify um, at, at racial and ethnic minorities um, in special education right now, there's, there's a trend of maybe under-identifying kids for special education because we, we attribute many of the, the deficits that we see to them being English language learners. And that's also a disservice to children. So, um, you know, I think it's really important to raise awareness of um, these types of practices and what we can do as a community to, to serve our kids a little bit better. That all makes a great deal of sense, and of and of course is extremely ap- applicable. You know, here uh, in the Los Angeles area, as you say, where you are, but certainly would apply in any area and in any culture where there uh, is a a bilingual aspect to to the the family and to the child. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you make all these really very, very good points. And I'm just thinking to myself, gee, you know, this, this applies no matter who you are, no matter where you are. If you're in a bilingual family, no matter what the two languages are, this is excellent advice, uh, for anyone that finds mm-hmm. themselves in this kind of a situation. Um, well, at this point, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't covered? And what do you think is the most important takeaway for our listeners to remember from our conversation? I think one of the most important uh, pieces of information I want our listeners to take away from this uh, from this podcast today is that um, an assessment should be an accurate depiction of a child, right? It should be a good characterization of their strengths and of their weaknesses. And more than anything, a good evaluation should facilitate intervention. Um, And if you don't have good, accurate data on a child, um, potentially you could be missing an important opportunity to intervene um, for this child and, and find appropriate therapies that could help them get ahead in life. Um, 
So it's not a trivial issue. And in order to get the best possible characterization, you need somebody who has firsthand knowledge of the cultural and linguistic differences that bilingual and bicultural children have. Um, it's, it's not because um, I want, you know, people to come to me because that's not it at all. I think there's a, a, a lack of professionals out there in the field who um, can work with bilingual children and bicultural children um, in this way. And, and so I think there needs to be more of an emphasis on training future clinicians, too, to work with bilingual and bicultural children. Um, and it needs to be like a community effort. Um, I think it's really important that we work together to assess this group of children who, um, by all accounts, is actually the majority in California at this point. So it's not something that we can ignore. I agree with you. I definitely agree with you on that. And how can our listeners reach you if they have questions or want to know more? Sure. Um, uh, I'm happy to answer any questions that people might have. If I can't help you directly, I have a wide network of uh, clinicians that I work with. Um, so you can always give me a call uh, at 424-255-6388, or you can go to my website, www.pediatricneuropsych.com. So that's www.pediatricneuro. P-S-Y-C-H dot com. It's a mouthful. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Vindia, for your time and the very helpful information you've shared with us today. Thank you, Gilda. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to speak with you today. I also want to thank our listeners for spending a part of their day with us. I'm Gilda Evans reminding you to take care of yourself and that special person in your life.